Well, as you likely know, the federal election campaign in full swing as we get ready to head to the polls on October 21st. We always look at voter turnout after, and unfortunately, the story is often that it's low, more so when we're talking about civic politics, even provincial politics on some level. But what about getting more people out to cast their ballots and focusing particularly on the younger vote? Well, my next guest is here to talk about this. Ian Waddell is the chair of the former Parliamentarians Foundation. He was a co-producer behind a film in 2015 called The Drop, Why Young People Don't Vote. Uh, You all so likely know him as a former member of parliament and MLA. Ian, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. morning. Nice early in the morning for you. I got to own up, Jill. I'm actually in Toronto. I've been traveling the country uh, for my role, you know, with former parliamentarians. We're trying to get people to, especially young people, to to vote, to get out, to participate. You know, um, we're worried about democracy itself. So uh, uh, it's about 9.30 my time, so a little more away. (laughs) Much more reasonable hour, your time. That's okay. Thanks so much for for talking about this, because I think it is an important uh, topic. And and why do you think it is? Because every election, no matter on what level, we often talk about this youth vote and this lost vote. Why aren't young people going to the polls? Jill, it's important for a number of reasons. The mere fact of, in the long run, preserving democracy in the long run, uh, uh, having a good, you know, civil society. But just go back a little bit to the stats. I've, I've, there's a group called here in Toronto called Samara, which has produced a paper about democracy, about participation. And, if, and this uh, pertains to what you mentioned, our movie. Um, in 19, uh, 2011, okay, the election of 2011, that's the, uh, <laughs> the one before... 2050. When a federal election 2011, we had one in 2015. So in 2011, 18 to 24 year olds, that's called millenniums, um, 39% voted. Okay? 39% of that group. In, in 2015, 57% voted. And if you look at 25 year olds to 34 year olds in that same period, at 2011, 45% voted versus 2015, 57% voted. So you could see in these young people, the vote went up substantially. Uh, as for old people, <laughs> some of us, maybe, let's say from, let's take 55 to 64. In the 2011 election, it was 72%. In, in the 2015, it was 74 So essentially the same. So the big vote, Jill, the big increase was the young people. And according to the Nana's pollsters, uh, they say that elected a liberal majority government because because it it, it, it tended to go liberal and and they went for Trudeau. He he captured their imagination. It went for them. It meant the election. And in this election, so politicians themselves want want the young people to vote because they think they might vote for them, and uh, and and um, uh, they will um, uh, they will win the election. Now. Uh, I think you've got to speak to young people. That's what we learned in the movie. Actually, we had a good clip of, of Justin Trudeau. He said, it's not the fault. Why are young people not voting? Dylan Playfair, our young actor, asked him, why are young people not voting? He says, it's not the fault of young people. It's the fault of politicians. And then he outlined the campaign, and it was very good. And, and you could see in the movie, Dylan goes, oh, my God, that sounds good, right? So he hit it there, and he got their vote. This time, I'm not sure. I, I Right now, I've watched the first week of the election, or the first few days, I guess, 
And I didn't see anything out there that was really going to grab young people as the last election did. Right, right. So you need to, So I mean, like anybody, I think they want to have a sense of connection and they want to they have, yeah. want to have a reason to go and cast a ballot. Well, there's a big issue, I think, out there. And I didn't see it enough in the first week of the campaign. And that's climate change. That is the issue for young people. It's also the issue for Canadians. But ironically, I think 70% of Canadians in a recent poll put climate change as a top priority. Although uh, 58%, to be honest, said they backed oil and gas development. So, you know, Canadians are like, um, they, they want their cake and eat it too, right? Well, that could be. I mean, if you're talking about young people and that's uh, yeah. liking Justin Trudeau, that's been the message he's been saying all along is that you can do both. Well, uh, it's, it's sort of, I rem- I'm old enough to know about the Quebec referendum when there was a comedian, Jill, called Yvonne du, uh, Ducharme, I think it was Ducharme or something. He says, what Quebec wants an independent Quebec in a strong and united Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big joke. It got great laughs. Uh, but this is not laughable. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. Uh, you know, when we've got uh, people in, in Toronto tonight, uh, Suzuki and um, and Dave and Stephen Lewis are kicking off a campaign nationally on making climate change a big issue. Uh, it's there, uh, and I think parties have to deal with it seriously. And I think you know, for young people who are told, like God, in twelve years you might not have the same world, uh, it's a big issue. And uh, I think the parties that the party that kind of grabs that, and I think housing and education too. Uh, those are the issues that I talk to. I talk to my young filmmaker friends, and this is what they tell me are the interesting are the are the issues currently. So, but if that's the case, and if young people are focused on climate change, which I think you're right, that is a huge a huge issue, and perhaps yeah. they're paying more attention to it. Then wouldn't they all vote green? Oh no! Well, no. I mean, you know, young people can be conservative too. And they can be socialist. They can be, you know, they have different views on different things. And they look at leaders different. And they look at who's going to deliver, you know. Uh, uh, I think it's still up in the air. I, I, I'm a bit biased, you know, because I wasn't an NDP. I tried to be a little bit nonpartisan now, Jill. But I thought, I thought seeing uh, Charlie Smith has got an article today in the, uh, in the Georgia Strait saying that Singh's underestimated. And that he's putting some of these issues, uh, you know, in a in a way there, and it's kind of out front on the discrimination issue and 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 things like that, which young people have. Uh, you know, you look at that first week, first few. I mentioned the first few days of the campaign, Jill, and I don't know what your your listeners think, but um, you know, they're talking about abortion. You know, the liberals are trying to you know, put paint sheer into a corner that he's going to bring back laws on abortion. And young people are going, huh? I mean, that's been, de- what, what are you talking about? This has been decided a while ago. It's been dealt with, you know, get on to, you know, how I'm going to get a house in Vancouver. Trudeau, uh, Trudeau did announcement in Vancouver about this, uh, you know, housing assistance. I think that rang probably true to uh, to some people, especially to young people. But it's not so much, you know, it, it's, it's not so much that they they're going to buy a house in Vancouver. It's they're going to rent a house in Vancouver. So they're going to want to know what are you going to do for renters? What are you going to do for us for long term, maybe below market rents? Give us some policy in that, you know. And so I, I still think that the, ma- the leaders are not quite listening 
enough to young people. They use them as backdrops. You see all these things, Jill, on the, I don't know if you watch the television news, you see all these smiling faces. Sort of look like Trump's crowd, you know? When he does a speech, all those people are smiling in the background. You wonder, are they really, you know, who are they? Right. Well, is it, uh, is it kind well, of a vicious cycle, though? Because you're right. The young people are always in the ads and they're always on the stages yeah. and part of the campaigns. But are politicians going to tailor their message to what young people want to hear if young people don't come out in big groups to vote and, and vice versa? So it isn't it not a, a vicious cycle in that one yeah. has to give before it changes. Yeah. But you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see we got these debates coming up instead of uh, with respect, you journalists. Uh, uh, maybe what we do is put a panel of young people and we let them go at the leaders, seriously at them, and and try to uh, come them out onto onto legitimate things, you know? Uh, and there's lots of issues that are current. Like, I'll give you an example. Trudeau, I think, won votes last time on the cannabis. We're going to legalize cannabis. Well, in some places, it's not so much in B.C., but a lot of places, it's a disaster the way they've rolled it out. It, they haven't done it very well. No. And, you know, young people may want to challenge that and say, hey, you promised this, and, geez, we might as well just go to the black market. You've given us a big health Canada bureaucracy that doesn't work, you know. Uh, so I think there are issues out there uh, that young people, if they, if, they, if they put it to them, as, as happened, I just, show, just told you the statistics uh, from 2011-2015. Um, uh, so now 2019, can you keep the, the youth vote or the young people vote up? I think right now, I, don't, I see them not coming out in droves like they did before, but I think they are reachable if you concentrate on their issues. One is specifically climate change, and I think the other one is probably housing. All right. Well, Ian, we'll have to leave it there and um, <laughs> stop at this point. But I think yeah, you raised yeah. some interesting points and hopefully we'll see an uptick in voter turnout. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks so much to you, uh, Joe. Yes, well, this is an interesting story, and uh, I've been paying attention, and I do wonder how it's going to turn out. You might have heard about this. Five employees from the Hotel Belmont in Vancouver are launching a human rights complaint, and the complaint is based on what they say is an unsafe work environment. But here's where it gets a little tricky, and you might be shaking your head going, what? Because the unsafe work environment is apparently caused by what is hanging on the bar walls. Talking about things such as a print of a nude woman, there are neon outlines of a naked woman and a naked man outside the washrooms, and those are just a couple of examples. So let's bring in criminal defense lawyer Sarah Lehman, who has written about this. You can read her piece in the Georgia Strait and at the Strait or Strait.com. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, you've written about this case and really taking a look at what it is that constitutes sexual harassment. So what stands out in your mind in this particular case? This is just so interesting to me. Uh, when I read about it, uh, I had to write the article in the Georgia Street um, because it engages so many uh, different facets of um, our community. You know, obviously, sexual harassment is completely unacceptable. It's something that could be or should rather be addressed at every um, instance. But the problem here, in my view, is that the sexual harassment being alleged in this case uh, has nothing to do with more than just art and what's on display. So it engages things like art censorship and, uh, you know, community morals and what we find to be decent or indecent. And whether or not that amounts to harassment 
is something else, I think. When I first read this, too, I thought, well, at what point does, does, does it stop? Because not that long ago, thankfully it's not still happening, but not that long ago, you could go into newsrooms and there would be calendars on the walls of women in bikinis. Or even now, I mean, I thought of the firefighters' calendars showing shirtless men, and those might be displayed. And I wondered, well, if this case says that it's sexual harassment to have this type of art, then what's to stop another employment place that might have a calendar that somebody finds offensive to to launch a complaint about that as well. Sure. And I mean, I think we need to also draw a distinction between art and, um, you know, pornography and things that are inappropriate in the workplace. Because I, too, remember a time, you know, when I used to work in the oil fields up in Fort McMurray long before I ever went to law school. And the break rooms were filled with, you know, pornographic and indecent images of women. And as the only woman or one of the only women on site, it, it is uncomfortable. But I think that there's a distinction between that and your preference in terms of art. So um, when we look at, you know, uh, what's in the Hotel Belmont, it doesn't amount to, in my view, pornography or anything that's indecent. I think that it's just a little bit of a a difference between uh, what people find to be acceptable or um, even, you know, aesthetic in terms of their art preference. And I think we have to be very careful about censoring art um, and guising it as sexual harassment in order to do so. What about the argument then, and this is the union, I think the employees have gone to the union involved in this at the hotel. The union has argued that this particular art, the choices that were made and the art that is on these walls is discriminatory against women and it makes the workplace hostile towards women who work there. I mean, I have a difficult time just having viewed the art myself. And if anyone hasn't seen it, you have an opportunity to do so. I would encourage you to. I think this might actually result in more business for the Hotel Belmont in some ways. <laughs> but some of the art that's there are just statements um, in neon. So, for instance, one of the statements in neon says, be naked when I get home. Now, we don't know who the author of that statement is or who it's directed at. So I have a difficult time kind of accepting that this is directed at women specifically, particularly when, you know, we also have the um, neon nudes, which are both male and female bodies being depicted. Um, But that being said, you know, if women feel unsafe in the workplace, it is it is a part of a larger conversation that we should be having. Uh, However, I note that there's no no other substance to this um, allegation of sexual harassment. uh, And none of the other workers have brought up anything but the art that's hanging on the walls. Uh, does it matter too when we're talking about a case like this what type of a business it is because you bring up that the neon sign that says be naked when I get home and then I think it goes on and there's even a more kind of explicit saying uh, in that neon sign but is it is it do we need to put it in context in that this is in a, a basement nightclub, whereas it would be much different perhaps if I walked into or if I worked in a coffee shop and this was on the wall or if I worked at a, a service Canada office and this was on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's, um, you know, a time and a place for everything. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think we'd be very careful when we start to censor art in public spaces, because if we're not allowed to display, you know, things like this uh, in a nightclub, then what's next? Um you know, what else is going to be uh, taken away. And uh, we have had a long history of art censorship in this world, you know, starting way back in the 1500s when Michelangelo's nudes were considered to be obscene and offensive and needed to be covered up. So 
you know, what's next? Um, and I think it's a scary thought. And you mentioned, too, there's nothing to say who, even the, even the neon sign that says, be naked when I get home, there's nothing to say who's saying that or who it's directed at. I would imagine it would be very different if an employee walked into the workplace and the neon sign said, all female workers subject to strip search. Absolutely, it would be. And I think it would be a different thing as well as perhaps like, you know, some type of derogatory or even um, suggestive a statement was in neon that was specifically directed at women or at another um, specific group of people to make them feel uncomfortable or degraded. And the fact that the five employees have come forward then... What what does where do you go from here? Isn't that they've they've launched a, a human rights case against this, saying that they feel discriminated or or, or even harassed because of this? Uh, where do we go from here? In that, is there a better way, perhaps, if an employee doesn't feel comfortable in and in this case, we're talking about female employees, so in her workplace, is there a better way to deal with this? Well, I mean, it's unfortunate that it's ended up before the BC Human Rights Tribunal, and we'll have to wait for their ruling on this. Um, But, you know, I think that a common sense approach is necessary here. Um, Certainly, you know, there are plenty of nightclubs and different um, institutions where people can go and uh, waitress. I'm not saying get another job, but at the same time, you know, if you're not um, comfortable working in, say, a nightclub that has some, you know, offensive or racy imagery on the walls, uh, you could always ask to to be transferred to a different um, hotel within that chain or or find a different location to work at. You should also just address it maybe with your manager or with the owner of the establishment and say, you know, maybe this isn't the best look for us. But uh, ultimately, I do think that it is uh, a little bit unfortunate that we're even having to kind of have this conversation because, at the end of the day, you know, claims of sexual harassment and discrimination that are frivolous in nature and spotlight the issue in this type of way will erode and undermine more legitimate complaints. Um, and uh, not only does it censor art, but I think it also does a disservice to the um, you know, issue of uh, discrimination and harassment in general. Right. And I guess this case, too, it's almost as though the the details of the messenger are are very important in that an art piece on a wall with the phrase, be naked when I get home, is much different than if an employee is going into the workplace and the manager is known for, say, walking around saying, be naked when I get home. Very different. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. Uh, I think that we have to um, consider, you know, the context here uh, and we don't want to become oversensitive, you know, to these types of issues uh, to the point where uh, we're not allowed to display, you know, images of the naked human form anywhere in public or we're not allowed to make reference to any type of human sexuality in artworks. I mean, that would be a very, very uh, sad, sad day in my view. And I think it's, you know, doing a disservice to our community. Well, we'll be watching to see what happens with this case as it goes through the Human Rights Tribunal. Sarah, thank you so much for writing the piece and for coming on the program to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, there has been a lot of talk, to say the least, about ride-sharing and Uber and Lyft companies like that coming to BC. We now know they are applying to come under the new rules released by the the Passenger Transportation Board in BC. If you were paying attention to the news this past week, uh, you would have seen Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, tell a group filled with taxi drivers that not on his watch, he would not be issuing business licenses, he would not be allowing 
companies like Uber and Lyft in Surrey. Well, we also heard yesterday from Lois Jackson, who is a current counselor with the city of Delta and a former mayor of the city of Delta, uh, saying she would like the Passenger Transportation Board to withdraw its approval, to go back to the drawing board. And that is the gist of a motion that's going to be coming to Delta Council on Monday. But Lois Jackson joins us on the line right now to talk a little bit more about that. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much, Jill, for having me. Uh, You can't say anything about ride sharing or ride hailing in this, uh, especially Metro Vancouver, without getting a lot of reaction. So what exactly, uh, what concerns do you have with the, the way that it's being brought in right now? Well, I guess there's probably two main categories here. One, I think the consultation has been very um, minimal in terms of uh, the facilities and municipalities being involved uh, or being asked by the provincial government or the uh, transit uh, transportation board, uh, you know, to to make comment. We 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 haven't seen any. Um, a consultation, particularly with the general public, or with uh, TransLink or BC Transit, who who basically are uh, the organizations that oversee transportation of people in our um, Lower Mainland, particularly. And one of the big ones that really bothers me is the the fact that um, the um, taxi uh, companies have to have. Um, their licensing, and and they have to have accessible cabs for people who have disabilities and who have uh, limited uh, mobility um, abilities to 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 use cabs. They also have drivers who have to take training to ensure that they can have drivers who can act, have people access their cabs. That's not so with the um, ride-hailing people, and I, I have a real concern with that. Um, there's, you know, there's a, a number of, of major differences that unfortunately create a very uneven playing field. And, um, um, you know, I, I, I think that the taxis, uh, they only have uh, a very limited number of cars on the road. Um, Unfortunately, the uh, unlimited um, ride-hailing vehicles, uh, you know, they're going to be congesting our roads, as we've seen in so many other places. It's hard to believe, but that's what's happening. So, you know, there's a whole host of things that are drawing attention to the uneven playing field, in my opinion, and the consultation has been very sketchy. Uh, the uh, the issue of accessibility, and you're right, there isn't the onus on Uber drivers or Lyft drivers to have accessible vehicles, but there yeah. is the fee per trip that will be collected to go into a fund to be to pay for that elsewhere. Does that offset it enough, do you think? Well, I think the problem is now that the uh, handicapped and disabled people are pretty housebound and uh, the the um, services for HandyDart and so on are, are really not probably what they should be. So it's a it's an, an entire matter that should be looked at more closely by those that are in charge, particularly TransLink and the provincial government. But um, I, I I don't know. I I think we should be looking at this more closely. Yes, we need more. Um, the vehicles on the road that are going to be able to take people to where they want to go. The 
other problem I see is that, if, if, for instance, I take a cab from North Delta into Vancouver. That cab is out of its territory then, and it cannot pick up anybody to bring them back to Delta. We have all kinds of cabs, of course, driving one way without anyone in them because of this situation. I think the Transportation Board should be looking at the existing licenses and allowing taxi cabs to have more licenses like they're going to do for the um, ride-hailing people uh, so that you know we, we can have better service. At this point in time, we don't have it because the Transportation Board isn't giving out any more taxi licenses or allowing any more taxi companies, as I understand it. So we have to look at that. So when you talk about that, and the boundaries have been a big issue, but can't we then focus on, yes, pressuring the the Transportation Board, open up the boundaries? I don't know anybody that would argue against that, because I think you're right, and everybody thinks it's ridiculous that a cab isn't permitted to take people back, even though they do it all the time, and it's one of those things where they kind of turn a blind eye to it, and nobody really cares. Open up those boundaries, but can't you do that and at the same time allow ride-sharing? Well, I think we have to uh, certainly have more uh, uh, ability to move our people around, especially at night and and odd hours. But um, we also have to make sure that, uh, you know, if if you have um, uh, government regulations in place for one group, those regulations have to be the same for the other group. And, you know, I keep hearing people say, well, it's way cheaper to take, um, you know, ride-hailing. Well, of course it's cheaper. Their licenses are cheaper. They uh, can go anywhere at any time, pick up anybody anywhere. The cabs can't do that. And uh, so, you know, the licenses for the cabs, as I understand it, are very, very high, and they aren't for ride-hailing. That's why the big difference. Right. So, Although with the, with the pricing, with ride hailing and people use it all over the world, yes, it can be a lot cheaper than cabs. But when you bring in surge pricing, it can actually be a lot more expensive. Yes, it can be. It can. And that's a, a kind of a bit of a vagary for people that are using them, I think. Um, so I, I just think we, we are, uh, if we're going to do this, it should be done right. You know, it shouldn't be done in a in a slap hazard uh, position, I, I don't really appreciate when the province say, well, you know, this is an arm's length um, corporation, uh, uh, the, the transit uh, board. Uh, you know, they're responsible. They appoint the people on those boards, and they should be looking a little more closely at what they're creating, because I really have some difficulty with it. And, you know, I've said to other people that according to a couple of articles I've read in Seattle, um, the ride uh, healing uh, has replaced not people in in their automobiles taking uh, trips back and forth. They're replacing people that are walking and biking and already taking transit. That's not what we want. <laughs> you know, we, we want to be uh, taking people out of their cars, I think, is what we want to do, and, and also give them service, of course. But I, I think we have to look a lot more closely at uh, uh, exactly what we are creating and have an even playing field because it, it's up to government to make sure that it is an even playing field. It's, it's a, you know, it, it, you know um, it is possible to have fair competition 
in the marketplace. But, you know, it has to be done properly through the regulations, and the regulations are quite lopsided at the moment. This has been years in the making, though. I mean, the Liberals uh, liberals can wear mm-hmm. some of this and that they stalled and dragged and bringing it in. They didn't bring it in. The NDP is now touting that they were mm-hmm. able to do it in a shorter period of time. There has been plenty of time for people to talk about this and to know about this. So when you talk about a lack of consultation, certainly municipalities and cities and TransLink could have made their opinions heard at any point leading up to this, couldn't they? Well, I think so. However, you know, when you're in the driver's seat, when you're in the provincial government's driver's seat, um, you have to reach out and make sure that you are getting the feedback you need to make the change in regulations. I also uh, am concerned that they aren't really appearing to take some of the experience in other cities into account, whether it's New York or Toronto or Seattle or Los Angeles. There, there's some, you know, articles that are coming out of these cities that don't, they don't necessarily uh, bolster the fact that uh, the rate hill. Ride-hailing uh, companies are really what they're touted to be. Um, so it's all over the map. There's, I, I don't think there's that consistency that I would like to see um, happening in other cities. I, I don't want to see that happen here, that inconsistency. And uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds. And I really hope that the the provincial government would have a a bit of a sober second look and make sure they're covering the basis because it really is not fair, uh, what what I see happening at least. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. We are out of time. But Lois Jackson, thank you so much. Always great to, to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much for having me.